central retinal artery occlusion. So this is essentially a stroke of your patient's eyeball. So stroke in the eye, ischemic stroke. We are infarcting the retina. Uh, so what do they look like, test like, and treat like? They're going to look as if they have no sight and no pain. So zero sight, zero pain. Um, they may present with something called fancy called amaurosis fugax, which amaurosis meaning dark and fugax meaning fleeting, fleeting darkness. So it's sort of this stuttering loss of sight. It's like a TIA of the eye prior to the stroke of the eye of central retinal arterial occlusion. Uh, what, do, what do they do on physical examination? So you should look for on fundoscopic exam, this cherry red spot, which we know that the, there are two circulations of the eye, the choroid and the retinal. The retinal is infarcted and out of commission. So that one, we've got this pale ischemic looking uh, retina, but we've also got this really bright weird spot because that is supplied by the choroid circulation. So this is your macular region. Um, so look for that cherry red spot. You may also see something called box carring, which they say it looks like a train with box cars um, because of the intermittent plaques in the eyes. So it's like a vessel with sputtering areas of atherosclerosis. Which brings me to my ne next point. What do these patients look like in terms of history? These are your typical Eastern North Carolina patients. You're going to see them all the time. They're your diabetics, hypertensive, vasculopath patients. They have risk factors for other vascular diseases. Um, you may occasionally see someone without that type of history. It might be a sickle cell patient or an isolated vasculitis patient, but by and large, these are your typical, think a heart attack, a typical heart attack patient, um, because this is a heart attack um, or stroke type, type patient uh, of the eyeball. So the key here is recognition. Um, permanent visual loss will happen after two hours, so we need to recognize it quickly in the emergency department. Um, Testing, there's not much to test except for things that may be responsible for the cause. So in the emergency department, your main job is to recognize it and boom, call ophthalmology. That's it. And you may, in the, in the interim, decide to do some testing to delineate the cause. Um, so you're thinking stroke of the eyeball, where did the plaque come from? Where did the emboli come from? Where did they throw this from? Do we need to get an echo of the heart? certainly get a carotid Doppler. Um, but these are secondary tests and secondary interventions to calling ophthalmology for emergent evaluation. Now, what do they tr we treat like? So we've talked about look like, test like, treat like. Treatment, unfortunately for these patients, is not great. So the tests that are out there or the treatments that are out there um, are none of them are really proven, unfortunately. So these patients actually have a very poor prognosis of regaining sight. Um, sometimes they do recover their sight spontaneously, um, but there's TPA, they can do intraarterial TPA, systemic TPA. It's really at the discretion of the ophthalmologist. Um, there's some data for uh, massaging the orbit to hopefully dislodge the clot. This is sort of, you know, last ditch effort, but hey, the prognosis is grim anyways, you might as well try it. Um, so you can massage their orbit, but again, in the emergency department, your job is recognition and to get the specialist on board. Um, I should also mention that on exam, they should have an afferent pupillary defect. And I say that and you may be like, what, what the heck is she talking about? Um, so we all know the swinging flashlight test where you swing your pen light to and fro from eye to eye. Um, and you notice that there is consens consensual reaction and direct reaction to light with constriction. 
Not so with these patients. So they have retinal ischemia. Their retina is not working. Um, so on the affected eye, they actually have a paradoxical dilation when you shine that flashlight or that pen light into their eyeball. Um, so you you know shine it in the unaffected eye. Hey, they've got constriction. Shine it into the affected eye, it's going to dilate on you. And I'm going to link a video of this to the lecture notes that you can watch. A very nice um, example of that Marcus Gunn um, pupil in the swinging flashlight test. So one of the most common tests that neurologists, ophthalmologists, and ED clinicians perform. Um, but again, poor prognosis of visual recovery, not a lot of, not a heck of a lot of treatment out there. So all right, someone comes in, severe eye pain, red eye, nausea, vomiting, acute onset. This is the typical presentation of acute angle closure glaucoma. They look like they're in distress. They're in sudden, severe pain, unilateral pain. Uh, they're going to have blurry vision. They may see halos around lights. The nausea and vomiting is common. Um, don't get distracted by that. And be sure to treat it as well because we don't want them to have such increased pressure and valsalving from vomiting that they actually have extrusion of the ocular, ocular contents from the orbit itself. So you don't want that all that you know, eye pressure to cause the ocular contents to actually project um, outward and, and have extrusion. Um, so these patients have a steamy, a said to be steamy cornea. The cornea is actually under so much pressure um, from this acute angle closure that it appears foggy. It looks steamy, steamy cornea. The pupil looks weird. It's going to be fixed in mid dilation and irregular in shape. It's not a you know typical round shape. It has an irregular shape to it. And what's going on here? So with acute angle closure, sometimes patients have a naturally narrow angle um, and they can be anatomically predisposed. You may get a test question that gives you a history of a dimmed light setting. The patient was watching a movie. They were in a movie theater. They were reading in dim lighting. All these situations are known to cause pupillary dilation. And the problem is that the iris, which is an accordion-like muscle, it gets basically squished and pushed against the uh, trabecular meshwork where the aqueous humor should be draining, but instead that iris is completely obstructing the angle. So it's squished against the angle. The Aqueous humor is being produced by the ciliary body, but it cannot get to and drain out of the trabecular meshwork because that big old iris is accordioned, it's squished down, and it's just blocking it. Um, also, I've seen patients on amphetamines or cocaine um, that cause pupillary dilation that are predisposed and do wind up having an acute ankle closure glaucoma. So consider that uh, as well as a presentation. So we've talked about what they look like. What do they test like? They're going to have an intraocular pressure reading that is greater than 40. Um, so greater than 40 is what's pathognomonic for this. My mom actually had this um, diagnosis and her pressure was 90. Um, so that's probably the highest that I've, I've heard of, but that's what she said that they said her pressure was. Um, typically anyone with a pressure greater than 50, you're going to have to move to systemic medications on and you do that under the guidance of ophthalmology. So that brings us to our next step and you need to know how to manage this in the emergency department. So always the number one step is to consult. So you've got a diagnosis, you have recognized the problem, we need to identify the specialist that we need to help us and aid in this patient's treatment. So number one step, consult ophthalmology. The second step is to recognize the first medications, the first local medications that you need to give in treatment. Um, so those are a series of eye drops that we're going to talk about, and they need to be given in a specific order. So the first two I'm going to tell you about are timolol and apriclonidine. So you're going to do timolol 0.5% and apriclonidine 1%. 
Uh, and these are both going to reduce production of aqueous humor. So we don't want any more humor being produced and cr increasing the pressure even further. We've got a edematous cornea, steamy, the pupil can't even move. It's under, you know, basically an ischemic paralysis of the pupillary muscle. It can't move. Um, so the first two steps are timolol, number one, apriclonidine, number two, and the last local medication you need to know as a good ED clinician is pilocarpine, and that's 2%. And that is going to serve to increase the aqueous humor outflow. The first two, timolol, apriclonidine, timolol is a beta blocker, apriclonidine is an alpha blocker. Those two reduce production. The last local med, pilocarpine, is a meiotic agent. So this is going to work to pull the peripheral iris or pull the iris away from the periphery so that it's no longer obstructing the canal um, or the angle. Um, and it's allowing the aqueous humor to then drain uh, via the trabecular mesh meshwork. Uh, this one, it's important that it's the third step though, because it's not going to be able to pull the iris away from the angle until you have reduced the pressure. So again, the iris is under an ischemic uh, paralysis. It cannot move. So you have to use steps one and two, timolol and apriclonidine, first to first address the in increased pressure and then you can try and move that iris out of the way with the meiotic agent pilocarpine so that's going to cause pupillary constriction and we know the problem is the pupillary dilation and the eye is actually fixed in mid dilation and cannot move um, so those are the local medication regimen we usually give one drop of each medication um, and you space those approximately one minute apart so one drop of each start with timolol the beta beta blocker apriclonidine, the alpha blocker, and then the last one is pilocarpine, one drop, um, again, one minute apart. And if it doesn't work, usually check the intraocular pressure and the patient's gonna feel a lot better too after you give them those drops and they're working. Um, reassess about 30 minutes after giving them. If the intraocular pressure is still high and the patient is still super symptomatic, repeat the same process again, one drop, one minute apart. Now, systemic meds, if the pressure reading is greater than 50, um, typically you're going to need systemic meds, and those are largely comprised of um, diuretics, so mannitol, um, but more commonly we would give acetazolamide or Diamox as the trade name. Um, also a diuretic, but also a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. Um, and this would be like 500 milligrams PO is what we typically would use, but we don't do this unless we've talked to ophthalmology and we have them on board. Um, and also, usually ophthalmology is very responsive to these cases. Uh, and if they can see the patient in less than one hour, I would just go ahead and send them to ophthalmology to begin with, because it takes over an hour for most of these medications, uh, even the local medications, to really start to have a therapeutic effect. Um, so don't delay evaluation and treatment by the specialist in the emergency department. So if the patient can be seen in less than an hour, do nothing and get them to ophthalmology. If there's going to be a delay, go ahead and start the local regimen. Um, a good way to remember that is TAP, um, Timolol, Apriclonidine, Pilocarpine. The first letter of each of those medications spells TAP. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. This is what you should be thinking of when you think of open or ruptured globe injury. So this is a diagnosis that is made based on your examination. And after such diagnosis is made, think MC Hammer, game over, drop the mic, don't touch it. Call ophthalmology, the patient needs surgery. So what do they look like, test like, and treat like? 
They're going to look like they're in misery, severe pains. This is someone who has had an open injury to the eye. They have a corneal deficit. They have streaming of intraocular contents out of the eye. And the hands-down clinical sign that you need to remember is the teardrop pupil. Teardrop pupil basically a distorted pupil that looks like a teardrop and the pointy end of the teardrop is actually pointing towards the laceration, towards the lesion um, and the defect of the eye. So if you see teardrop pupil, drop the mic, game over, don't touch this. Um, They're also going to have obvious symptoms of decreased vision, severe pain. You might see a hyphema. They're going to have an afferent pupillary defect. So that's, you know, any injury to the eye that is severe, Uh, The patient can demonstrate an afferent pupillary defect. They fail the swinging flashlight test. A normal eye is going to constrict on both sides, consensual and direct. The affected eye, whenever it's injured, is not going to have the ability to constrict. So they have so much swelling and injury that they lose that ability. You might see something called uveal prolapse, where the colored portion of the eye is actually herniating outward. So you can see that with an open globe as well. Um, So these are trauma patients. Um, So that's what they look like. What do we do with, with testing? What do they test like? Get the CT, CT of the orbit. And we need to make sure they don't have an associated orbital blowout fracture. So these are fractures that need to be identified of the the orbit and the surrounding bone um, because they are high risk for something called entrapment of the lateral rectus muscle. So it can get entrapped, requiring further surgery. Um, So we need to make sure that is not going on. That's usually a blunt trauma mechanism. um, So not like a fish hook to the eyeball type thing. Um, But do, you know, they, they do need a CT for delineation of orbital uh, open globe and orbital rupture, um, and also just make sure that they don't have that associated blowout fracture if there was blunt trauma. Um, Seidel's sign is another big sign that you might see with testing. So this is named after a German ophthalmologist, Seidel, uh, and this is very similar to the testing that's done for corneal abrasion. It's basically a, a stain applied to the eye, a fluorescein stain, 10% fluorescein, And with corneal abrasion, it just pulls in the epithelial deficit with an open globe or ruptured globe injury. It's going to have this streaming appearance. And I did post a video that you can view if you'd like to see the Seidel sign in action. Um, So go ahead and take a look at that in Teams. Um, But this is a pathognomonic sign or test for uh, open globe injury. So you're going to see that flow of aqueous humor out of the eye, out of the anterior chamber. Um, You can see it under blue filter on slit lamp or woods lamp. And it just has this green sort of streaming appearance under blue filter and indicates corneal puncture and leakage. So what do they treat like? What do we do? So put an eye shield on them. You don't want them to have any further injury. So once we've diagnosed this, we aren't going to manipulate the eye any further. So again, don't touch this, MC hammer. Um, Keep the patient MPO. They're gonna need surgery. Don't give them anything to eat. Get an IV line on them, start some antibiotics. Um, Update their tetanus. So anytime, think of the cornea as skin. Um, When someone has a laceration, we always think of updating the tetanus. Think of the same thing whenever there's a laceration or injury to the cornea. Um, so there's a break in the skin. We need to make sure their tetanus is up to date. Um, so antibiotics, tetanus, don't touch it. Call ophthalmology. The patient needs surgery. Another important adjunct of treatment in the emergency department is to super control any nausea, vomiting, and pain. Um, so give them aggressive pain medication, aggressive anti-emetic medication. You don't want them to increase their intraocular pressure with vomiting, crying, any of that business um, because they can have further extrusion um, of ocular contents by crying or emesis. So summary, teardrop pupil, drop the mic. You've got an open globe injury. You've got a ruptured globe. 
Then think MC Hammer, don't touch this. Don't put anything into the eye, um, no further manipulation of the eye. Get the CT for the definitive diagnosis um, and to rule out entrapment. Call ophthalmology and the patient is gonna need surgery, so keep them NPO. Hook them up with pain medicine, vomiting control, IV antibiotics, and tetanus update. Boom. Okay, iritis, or more specifically, anterior uvitis, because the iris is part of the uveal tract, and this is an inflammation of the iris and ciliary body. So you may hear it termed simply iritis, or anterior uvitis. What do these patients look like, test like, and treat like? They look like they're in pain and they have a red eye. And the redness is specific. So you may see on test questions, board questions, something called limbic injection. And that is specific redness around the iris. So the redness is concentrated circumferentially around that iris. They're gonna have photophobia, blurred vision. But the key buzzword here, guys, is that they have consensual photophobia or pain. Um, so this is the hallmark, this is the buzzword. When you do that swinging flashlight, test. It hurts not only when you shine the light directly into their eye, but also when you shine the light into the unaffected eye. And why is that? Because the pupil is still constricting. Um, so it doesn't matter where you're shining the light. If the pupil is still moving around, hence the inflamed iris is moving around, horrible irritation is going on. It doesn't matter if you're shining it into the affected eye or the unaffected eye, they're going to have severe pain. Um, so they're going to have a constricted pupil that's not very reactive due to the severe ciliary spasm they're experiencing. What do they test like? Um, so I want you to think systemic disease. Whenever you see an iritis or an anterior uvitis patient, think what is the underlying cause? Because a lot of these patients, around 40%, are going to have an associated systemic problem, um, an immune-mediated disease. Um, usually sarcoidosis is what I've seen, but also don't forget your infectious causes. And this is namely STDs, syphilis being the big one. Um, so we don't usually do shotgun lab testing, but if, if this is a presentation where the patient doesn't have a history of sarcoid, they don't have a history of a known autoimmune problem like IBD or reactive arthritis, um, psoriasis, something like that, um, testing is usually limited to an initial chest x-ray and an RPR or VDRL. So make sure it's not a silent syphilis presentation. And make sure it's not like a pulmonary sarcoid because sarcoid is so associated with this. When I've seen it, the patient has had an existing diagnosis, um, but if they do not and you want to begin the initial investigation, start with just a chest x-ray and syphilis testing. Um, they don't recommend sort of shotgun lab testing in these patients because generally if it's a first episode, it's going to resolve um, and the lab testing is just not very high yield. So that's testing to consider. Um, also, whenever you do the slit lamp on these people, the really pathognomonic phrase that you need to know, another big buzzword with this diagnosis is something called cells and flare. Whenever you hear cells and flare, it is synonymous with iritis or anterior uvitis. Um, so this, the cells are simply white blood cells and they look like sparkles to me, sort of floating around in that black background of the pupil. Um, so the money spot to look for cells and flare is directly over the pupil with the slit lamp. Uh, and it's gonna look like, um, I mean, some people say that it's like snowflakes floating in the moonlight, just sounds kind of to romanticize it a little bit, um, but it's white blood cells. And there's also protein from inflamed leaky vessels that are now allo allowing protein to spill through. Um, so, so much inflammation that is causing protein to leak out of their, their vessels. And that is the flare. Um, the flare is basically just a fogginess that the protein causes. Um, so it doesn't look like the pitch black pupil. It looks kind of like a foggy pupil with little floating snowflakes. Um, so what do we treat like? 
So a big clue with treatment is that if you use Propercane on these people, so they have severe eye pain, maybe you try Propercane initially to try and see if that improves their pain um, to do a visual acuity or something like that, it's not going to work. So this should be a big clue that the pain source is much deeper than the superficial epithelium of the cornea. Um, the main treatment, call ophthalmology and talk to them about starting steroids. You don't want to do this independently. Always do this in conjunction with ophthalmology. Because if you give them patient intraocular steroids and it happens to be an infectious process, you're going to make things a lot worse for your patient. Um, so alongside ophthalmology, start your steroids. In the ED, give them cycloplegics. It's going to help. The reason why they're in pain is because they're having that ciliary muscle spasm. So paralyze it. Make it not make it immovable. Um, and why do we care about this diagnosis? Uh, basically, if it goes untreated, obviously the patient is in pain. They'd like some cyclogel or cyclopenolate, um, that cycloplegic agent to dilate and paralyze the ciliary muscle. Um, but we care because long-term this is going to cause adhesions, it's going to cause synechiae, which can lead to increased intraocular pressure, glaucoma, decreased visual acuity in your patient. So summary, they look like they have severe pain, they've got that consensual buzzword, consensual pain, consensual photophobia, limbic injection, not just diffuse redness, test-like, don't forget the cells and flare on slit lamp, treat-like, topical anesthetics will not work. Call ophthalmology, start some steroids, give them some cycloplegics in the emergency department with uh, consultation with ophthalmology and get them to follow up. Always remember your systemic causes. So if it's an undifferentiated cause, consider that chest x-ray for pulmonary sarcoid and consider syphilis testing. Sperm solution in eye was the chief complaint. I went into the room and it was actually perm solution, which the patient further clarified, but kind of a funny typo. And in the ED, you take those at face value. So I was fully expecting sperm solution to be the problem. <laughs> um, chemical burns of the eye. Let's talk chemical burns. So acids and alkalis are always bad when mixing and mingling with your eyeball. Um, and sometimes it's hard to remember like which things are acid, which things are alkali, because it does matter. The difference between the two matters in your treatment and the aggressiveness with which you irrigate the eye um, because the outcomes are different. So acids, the easy clue is that these tend to end in the word acid. So yay, sulfuric acid, hydrochloric acid, that's helpful, right? Um, and the other easy clue is that the others tend to end in the word hydroxide. So we know we've got an alkali substance, magnesium hydroxide, calcium hydroxide. Um, I've seen sparkler burns to the orbit or to the eye, and these should always be treated as an alkali injury uh, because the, the sparkler, the magnesium of the sparkler actually combines with the fluid in your eyeball to produce magnesium hydroxide. Um, so it's actually an alkaline injury rather than a thermal injury, so it should be treated as such. So which do you guys think is worse? Is an alkali injury worse or an acidic injury worse? If you're thinking alkali, then you're correct. So both cause necrosis of the eye. However, the alkali injuries cause a liquefaction necrosis. This means that it penetrates deeply within minutes into the cornea, through the cornea, to the deep structures of the eye. Bad news bears. Um, the acid injuries are bad, uh, but they actually cause a coagulation necrosis, which is typically superficial. There's rare, rarely vision loss. Now, I'm not saying it's a walk in the park, right? So it can certainly jack up your cornea and cause pro profound corneal scarring. It's just not going to penetrate to the deeper surfaces of the eye. 
Um, so several cases of alkali exposure that I've seen, the eye can actually appear completely white due to the severe ischemia of the conjunctiva and the, the scleral vessels. Um, basically, the, all of the vessels are um, completely necrotic uh, and no longer functioning. So the eye actually looks completely white. In cases like that, I mean, I've seen patients be irrigated for greater than 12 hours. Sometimes these patients are admitted for prolonged irrigation of the eye. Uh, what do they test like? We've talked about what they treat like uh, or what they look like. What do they test like? So always check the pH. Your first step um, in assessment is to test the pH. You do this with litmus paper, which you guys have probably all seen. You can always, if you're in a pinch and you don't have any, which you should in the emergency department, but you can always use a urine dipstick that has that pH uh, pad on the strip that can be used to assess the ocular pH. And you just pull down the lower canthus of the lid and insert the litmus paper into that lower canthus to get an idea of what the pH is. If it's only one eye that's affected, check the check the good eye because not everyone's pH is exactly the same. Normal is like 6.5 to 7.5. Your goal is going to be 7. Um, but if you know in the normal eye that they're you know 6.5, then that's an appropriate goal as well. So check the good eye if they have a good eye. Um, and with testing, always measure intraocular pressure because some chemicals and significant burns can certainly increase the pressure. Um, treat like, what are we going to do for these people? This is one situation where uh, treatment comes before assessment. So you're not going to be able to do in any eye pain situation that's a superficial um, injury where preparacaine can help the patient's visual acuity. Don't waste your time trying to get like, you know, a their visual assessment, uh, the Snellen chart, <laughs> whenever they're in severe pain, they can't even open their eyeball because of severe blepharospasm. Um, so that would be silly, right? So make sure with anyone with an ocular burn, before you do any sort of exam, you fix the blepharospasm, give them some topical anesthetic, and then you're going to irrigate the hell out of that eyeball. Um, so we're going to use Morgan lens. Um, you know, usually I hang at least two liters of normal saline. So that's two bags of IV fluid going in through the Morgan lens. Uh, and then you reassess at about, you know, after the two liters are over, usually around 30 minutes, it's hanging wide open. It's not on like a rate or anything. It's just normal saline. Um, kids aren't usually going to tolerate the Morgan lens very well. So a little um, MacGyver move that you can do is to take your nasal cannula, hook it up to your bag and sort of tape the nasal cannula to the bridge of their nose and just have that constant drip, constant irrigation going into the eyes. They're going to tolerate this a heck of a lot better than having basically a contact lens instilled in their eye. Um, after, you know, irrigation and we've got that goal pH, so always recheck the pH. So irrigate, 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 recheck pH, irrigate, irrigate, recheck pH. Um, this is the mainstay of treatment. Um, anytime you have an injury to the cornea, remember we think of the cornea as skin, just like anywhere else in the body. If you've got an injury, a laceration, we need to think we need to prevent infection. So we're going to do a topical antibiotic, topical erythromycin, 0.5% ointment. Um, that's probably your most common go-to and you're going to also consider tetanus update. Is there tetanus up to date? Um, give them aggressive pain medication. Cycloplegics to prevent ciliary spasm is going to help a lot with their pain. Um, so paralyze. Give them that paralytic um, with the cycloplegic. It's called cyclogil. And make sure you consult ophthalmology for follow-up. Another take-home point I'd like to hit on real quick is UV exposure. So not all burns are related to chemicals. Um, you'll commonly see this is either the skier that has been you know, skiing and they weren't wearing proper eye equipment or eye protection and the reflection of the light off of the snow has caused a UV burn. More commonly in Eastern North Carolina, we see welders keratitis. So welders, UV keratitis, people who are welding without proper eye equipment. It is not uncommon to see this in the emergency department. And the funny thing about these types of exposures, UV 
exposures, UV burns to the cornea, is that they don't feel it at first. They feel fine. And then six to 12 hours after the exposure, they come in with severe blepharospasm, severe pain. They feel like a million bucks after you give them that preparacane. Just remember, you can't send it home with them. And they always ask. They always want to go home with the preparacane. But if they continue to instill that in their eye, it can lead to corneal ulceration and um, worse bad news things. Um, so with these patients, you treat them just like any other keratitis, any other corneal epithelial deficit, like corneal abrasions. Keratitis just means corneal inflammation. Um, they're going to have diffuse uptake with the fluorescein stain. So it's kind of like diffuse punctate lesions that you see uh, with the fluorescein stain on these UV keratitis patients, UV exposures. Um, just looks like uh, diffuse punctate or pinprick uh, lesions to the cornea. Make sure you treat their pain. Topical antibiotics like erythromycin, update tetanus, close ophthalmology, follow-up for these patients. Boom. So I'm just minding my own business. And bam, here's a 60-year-old female, history of diabetes, hypertension. Uh, she says she had floaters in her eye yesterday, but today she's coming into the emergency department. She says she's got this shadow over her eye, an acute, sudden loss of vision in her right eye. I'm holding up fingers. She can't count my fingers. She's grabbing onto them, palpating them to tell me how many fingers I'm holding up. She has no pain. So this should be thinking, you should be thinking retinal detachment. Um, these patients, what do they look like? They've got usually older, they have a history of diabetes, maybe sickle cell, maybe it's a traumatic retinal detachment. It could be a history of injury. It can certainly be idiopathic as well. Um, but this patient had risk factors, including diabetic retinopathy. This is a risk factor for detachment because of the neovascularization process. Um, it's trying to create new blood vessels, but it's doing so in a crude manner. And it's basically just a conglomerate of non-functional functional vessels that are taking up space and increasing pressure making it a risk factor for the retina to pop off. Um, so painless vision loss. They're going to complain of floaters. They may say, you know, these are dark specks reported in their line of vision. Then they have maybe flashes of light. And this curtain is like the textbooky phrase. A curtain falls in front of their eye. Um, and they may describe it as a curtain or I've heard people say a shadow in front of their eye. Um, their intraocular pressure. So what do they test like? It's going to be normal. So no increases in intraocular pressure. It could be normal. Um, what do they test like in terms of fundoscopic exam? The ophthalmoscope is basically like a dust collector in the emergency department because a fundoscopic exam is really not helpful unless you have a dilated eye. Um, so I don't know about you guys, but when you're doing your fundoscopic exam, you know, in lab or, you know, for your skills assessment, for H&P, you know, you're all like, oh, I'm tracing along the four quadrants. And, you know, we're all like, okay, <laughs> sure you are, <laughs> you know, um, because you really can't do a full exam or see much uh, with a fundoscopic exam unless you have a dilated eye. Um, so when the patient follows up with ophthalmology, sure, they're going to be able to see that, what do they call it, dunes on a beach appearance to the, the retina where it's got those folded areas of retinal detachment. The money test in the emergency department is the ultrasound. So get your bedside ultrasound slap it on their eyeball. Um, a nice non-messy way to do this if you don't want to glue up their eyeball. So you have them close their eye and you can put a tegaderm, which is basically like a, it's the sticker that you get when you get an IV that they put over it. It's like a bandage. Um, it's a clear bandage. 
you know, tape down their eye, then use the ultrasound jelly over top of that so that they don't get super um, goopy. And you can super easily see and diagnose retinal detachment, whereas, again, the fundoscopic exam, direct fundoscopic exam is a complete waste of time. Uh, most of these retinal detachments are in the periphery of the retina, so you're not even going to be able to see them, even if you are really good at doing a direct fundoscopic exam. Um, it's just not going to be very fruitful without having that eye dilation. Um, so painless loss of vision, flashing lights, floaters, falling curtain across the eye fields. Um, that's what they look like, tests like, get your ultrasound, you can easily see that floating sort of membrane in the back of the eye with the ultrasound to indicate retinal detachment. It's so ridiculously easy um, to diagnose that way. Treat like, call ophthalmology. It is a surgical emergency. Our job in the ED is recognition, recognition, recognition. Call them and get them to the OR so that they can tack that retina back into place. It's a very successful surgery in most cases, um, over 80% successful. Uh, so get them to the OR ASAP.